Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Pursuit Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Antonair. And in today's episode, Ben and I are joined by Greg Farrell, the Senior Category Manager for Whitetail at First Light. We introduce Greg and talk about his early start with hunting, joining First Light, and the transition to product development and later becoming the Senior Whitetail Category Manager. We get into the hunting trips that he has planned this year and the First Light YouTube series, The Method. Next, we get into the creation of their whitetail product line, including their unique camo pattern, Spectre. Ben and I both wear First Light apparel, and it was super cool to peel back the curtain and see all the development and testing that goes into creating high-quality whitetail gear. Please welcome Greg Farrell. All right, everyone, we are live with Greg Farrell from First Light, the Whitetail product manager, correct? Yeah, yep, yes. Uh, senior category manager for Whitetail. Yeah, senior category manager. See, I knew that you said something different, but in my mind, it's always like product <laughs> product manager. So Everybody calls it something different, right? But it's all kind of the same thing. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. No, thank you. I know, uh, you know, as we're recording this, we're a week away from the opening day here. Uh, just about a week, about nine days away from opening day here in Ohio. Um, so I know it's, it's, things are happening, man. Bucks are going down. People are shooting stuff. It's, uh, this is the best time of the year. It's just like, we're getting, we're getting all ready to go. Getting the fever. Getting the fever, man. All for sure. Um, before we get into the gear and and first light and the company itself, man, let's hear about a little bit more about just Greg as a person and and who you are and, uh, give us a little bit of background about yourself. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I, um, Wisconsin native, um, was born here, kind of, you know, grew up in that like classic Midwest, um, exposure to the outdoors, right? Like cut my teeth on whitetails and turkeys, a little bit of upland, um, you know, did some fishing with the family, things like that. But that was really kind of my introduction and, um, I guess, you know, first forays into the outdoors. Um, and for whatever reason, like, you know, I, I don't know, I must've been, maybe nine, 10, when my dad started taking me with him bow hunting, um, you know, just sit with him in the stand. We can't hunt till we're 12 here in the state of Wisconsin, but like, that was my thing. Like I enjoyed the other stuff, but there's like a switch that just went off. And like, ever since then, it was just, it's always just kind of always been about whitetails for me. Um, I just, I loved it then. I mean, my dad used to joke. It was like the only thing that he ever saw me do as a child where I could actually sit still. Like I could sit in tree stand for hours, but I was the kid that was always getting in trouble in school for moving around too much and talking too much and you know, all that stuff. But you put <laughs> me course. in tree stand and I could sit there for hours. So, um, that's kind of how it all started. Um, when I went off to college, I kind of chose the Western portion of the state. I went to UW lacrosse because there's giant deer there. And, <laughs> there um, uh, it was an excuse to be able to kind of chase after them. I joke, I finished undergrad and went back to grad school just so I could spend two more years there. <laughs> That's, awesome. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. It was an expensive, uh, expensive way to get two more years in Western Wisconsin deer. Iron, but, um, yeah. And then I actually, my, uh, college degree was in the sciences. I was into a bio and chem major, um, ended up teaching for a couple of years after college. And then, you know, I'm always, I've always been like tinkerer. Um, I grew up like all my uncles, my dad, everybody's in the trade. So I was always like working carpentry jobs, you know, doing all that stuff. Um, growing up like in the summers and, you know, just as like when you're a kid, you got a job. Right. 
so I always like liked that like tinkering and creative side, like building things. And I was the guy that like didn't matter what piece of gear I got, like I was taking it apart, trying to make it better, trying to make it lighter, you know, add stuff to it. Like that's just kind of how my brain works. So um, I ended up applying for a job at First Light. Um, it was like a sales, marketing, customer service, kind of like almost like internship. Um, There's only six employees there at the time. And it was like a June, July, August was kind of like the trial period, right? Because that was their busy season at the time. Um, because I was teaching, I had the my June, July, and August up anyways. So ended up like getting the job there. Um, it was kind of like overambitious and underqualified for maybe the categories, right? But I remember like when I showed up in Idaho, so I moved out to Idaho when I showed up there. Um, our VP of sales at the time, who's now our... Um, I guess, chief commercial officer uh, asked me, he's like, so, you know, like if, if this works out and, you know, if, if you want to be here and, you know, blah, 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 like, where would you see yourself? Like, what, what would you really want to do at first sight? And he was like, no questions. Like, okay, I want to do product development because that's like the way my brain works. It's what I'm passionate about. Um, kind of long story short, about a year after that, um, I moved into the product team and I've kind of been there ever since, like held a bunch of different roles within the product department. And then as we grew, like as most people know, we started as a Western-based company. Um, that was really, um, you know, kind of our foundation, like within this high-end hunt space. Um, but as we grew and our bandwidth increased, like we moved into Whitetail, and that kind of became my baby. So, um, yeah, I guess here we are. I moved back to Wisconsin from Idaho about three years ago. Um, had a, a conversation with First Light and was like, hey, you know. Uh, this can go one of two ways. Like I can live out here in Idaho and spend seven days a year, maybe chasing whitetails um, and try and do the job to the best of my ability. Or I can live in a place where I could spend 50 days a year in the tree stand. And guess what? Like 43 of those days, I'm thinking about gear, improving gear, whatever. Right. Where if I only get my seven days, like during the rut and like my vacation, it's like, I'm thinking about deer hunting, not thinking about like making badass whitetail gear. Right. Uh, yeah, and they were yeah. We totally agree. Like that's the most authentic way. Like we can become, uh, you know, really high end in this space, and um, the rest is kind of history. Yeah, it makes it makes perfect sense. I mean, you can only think about whitetail so much when you're in the mountains of Idaho. You know, like it's just yeah. not. Yeah. It's just not the same as coming where the grass is a little greener, and that's a pun intended. You know, coming east and and being in those hardwoods, and, and you know, and, and actually truly living it. And like you said, because then it gives you the whole entire season to, you know you're starting to think about what the guy needs during the, the warmer months. You're starting to think about what the guy needs during the colder months. And you have more of that time to build those long days and those long sits where you're sitting 12, 13 hours. You can actually truly think about, okay, if I had this pocket here, if I had this here, or this zipper needs to be something different than just like bang, 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 trying to run it, you know, rush it out. So. Yeah, you're spot on. I mean, I can sit at my desk all day and like, you know, build product briefs and, and think about that stuff. But I mean, we joke about it all the time. It's true. That's like 99% of my product development gets done in a tree stand. It's just like, because you're in it and like that is when you're actually thinking about like those little minute details that take a product from like 90% of the way there to a hundred percent of the way there. For sure. And, um, before we dive into that stuff, I want to keep, keep the conversation going with, with what you got and when you're hunting and being in the stand. Um, we, we mentioned seasons and stuff. So, how, how, like before we got started, how's that going for you so far? Um, you know, are you doing any type of food plot prep or are you doing any type of maintenance? Are you staying close to Wisconsin this year? You got some destination stuff. What, what's it look like for your season? 
Yeah, so I'm kind of all over the place. Um, I have a couple leases, um, you know, pretty close to where I live. Um, I'm lucky enough to uh, have permission on a spot in western Wisconsin that my buddy's family owns. Um, we kind of all chip in, like, between myself and him and one other buddy. Like, we kind of do all the food plots, all the TSI, all the maintenance year-round. And because of that, um, we get access to bow hunt it. They, the rest of his family only gun hunts it. So it kind of works out perfect. Like, we like doing that stuff anyways. Um, we kind of get their, you know, benefit from the fruits of our labor during bow season. And, and they're stoked, right, because they have better gun season. So oh, for sure. that's kind of where I do that stuff. Um, and then this year, um, in terms of travel, um, I'm going to be in Kentucky the first week in November. Um, go right from there, Kansas tag this year. So I have about 12 to 14 days slotted in Kansas if it takes that long. Um, and then what else we got going? I'm coming or I'm going to be in uh, – I'm going to try and hit the rut in Mississippi, that like December rut. I'm going to cruise down there and then um, head towards you guys, uh, Southern Ohio for late season, um, probably like middle of January. Do you know whereabouts like up here are you coming? Do you have any idea or is it? Um, we're still, it's that one, that trip's not firmed up yet. I know I'm going to do it. Um, we do have a couple connections just of like pro staff guys and just people I know, landowners um, that we've already got permission on. So I haven't decided for sure where I'm going to be, but somewhere like Southern Ohio, probably like South Central. Um, that mid January. Yeah, I can I, I can already envision who the people that you're talking to and what the area is. I'm like <laughs> I won't say. We'll we we'll can talk about it yeah. offline. But like I told you in the text, yeah. man, we're like so we're kind of like what would you be like East Central? We're like half hour east of Columbus. Um, kind of okay. um, halfway between like I don't know if you've ever heard of like Zanesville. I don't know, just like that eastern quarter of the state, if you will. And um, so we're probably like an hour and a half two hours at the tops for most of just about anywhere in Southern Ohio that you want. We'd be glad yeah. to come down and hang out and drink a beer and hang and, sh and shoot the shit. So definitely, 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 definitely hit us happen. up, man. I would love nothing more, dude. No, nothing more. So, yeah. um, I'll have to get some uh, windproof gear though. I don't have the windproof. All right. We already <laughs> talked about it. I don't have the windproof and you know, January, late January, oof, it might be rough. Maybe, maybe I can, uh, maybe I can hand deliver some on my way through. If you don't get it before the There we go. I still get my 30, <laughs> do I still get my 30% pro discount? <laughs> we'll figure something out. <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, you know, talk about these trips. So um, you had mentioned Kansas. Um, you had mentioned Wisconsin. I know from your video with the method that you were hunting Wisconsin. Is that the same farm, the doe management video that you yeah. were on? I, I figured as much, so. Yeah, that was the, um, we've done a couple of videos on that. It's actually the place we had um, Jeff Sturgis out there to kind of help us when we first started, like, you know, laying down a plan for what we wanted to do with that property. Um, and then, yeah, last season, the way it played out, we did um, just like a doe management hunt out there. And, um, yeah, I was lucky enough to draw Kansas last year, so I, I kind of gave up my rut hunt there and was in Kansas. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the, the plan for this year as far as whitetails go. Anyway. Yeah, so I guess kind of where I was going with that, too, is like if, if you're doing something for a first light, I think, and this, this may be the answer, this may not, but if I'm, I'm assuming if you're doing something for a first light, it's probably more of like an outfitted or more of like a private landowner area where you're not having to worry about the competition so much, or is that kind of off base a little bit? Um, I, I wouldn't say that's necessarily true. Like we end up in those situations sometimes. Um, it, it really depends what we're trying to do, right? Like, um, uh, there's a good chance in Southern Ohio, I'm going to be on some public ground. 
Um, we have access to private in Kansas, um, but there's a lot of public around there too that we spent some time on. And for me, it's kind of more just like giving myself the best opportunity. Like we definitely work with um, some outfitters and I've done a few, you know, private land type hunts that way. But mostly what we like to do is like, we'll try and get a lease or we'll try and get access to a place where it's not really an outfitted deal. Like it's like, you got to go in there and figure out like get boots on the ground and figure it out. But we do know to your point, like, you know, maybe we're not walking into um, a spot where there's 30 other guys hunting. So yeah. And there's a fine line, I think in the industry that you have to balance between walking in something that's just like, and I'm not to belittle anybody, but just like the TV show environment where everything's perfectly groomed, perfectly manicured. You know, that there's six one eighty pluses in this property. Like, selling your product to someone it's very like transparent if you will that that's what you're that's yeah. where you're at you know when when you see someone it's like and, and john eberhart had kind of said this to us um in an, another instance but you know when you see like a handful of 180 pluses walk into <laughs> one particular spot and you're like come like okay these deer haven't been pressured at all in the last six years and so <laughs> it's a little bit different yeah. but um i mean going to the route where you are you're just a hunter and you're using properties and leases and private knock on door permission, just same as anyone else, just same as him and I, you know, that's, I mean, that's 90% of the people that are out there are are doing knock on door permission or doing a lease or, you know, going with a buddy or whatever have you. So I wanted to kind of set the bar there for the, for the listener for that. So. Yeah. For what it's worth, I've never seen more than maybe 180 deer in an entire season, much less (laughs) a sit, but man, you know, and, and for me, it's like, and again, to each their own, right? Like it, whatever makes you happy in hunting, whatever like gets you fired up, like I'm all for it. Like my experience should not be yours. You should not be mine. Like I, whatever you want to do or makes you happy. Like, I think that's what people should be doing. But for me, like I get more out of that chess match and like figuring out a property and like trying to figure out a deer or a couple deer, like, the like earning it portion of it to me is like that's more fun and i get more enjoyment out of that than like actually pulling the trigger on one right like and if i don't have that piece to it it like it kind of takes away from why i want to be out there it's just like that's just not what fires me up i guess oh for sure and we have a pro staffer andrew i mean he listens to every episode so he'll he'll know exactly what i'm getting ready to say but um last year we filmed some content with him um for tethered but um, basically, he went to a super heavily pressured public land area that had walking trails, dog pass, frisbee golf, you know, the whole area. And this is your dedicated archery zone, right? And chased yeah. and shot a really nice, what was he, like 130-ish class buck? Like yeah, he was a nice. Yeah, really nice buck. Yeah. And um, he's like, yeah, I could go to Zaleski State Forest or I could go down the Perry or I could go to this place or that place and, 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 and challenge it. But he's like, I've been there and I've done that. Like. I want like part of this season is for me to learn new things. Yeah. He did exactly what you just said. He's all about learning and challenging himself. Yeah. Yeah, He's like, you know, now I have the added pressure of walking in. I think I've heard Taylor say this before, like buying like a track suit to walk into like a public land. But like I walked, (laughs) we have a really funny story and I, I have to go back and see what episode that is. But the buck that he shot the night before, like as he was like walking in to hunt, he was had uh, his solids on. So he was walking in with just regular old solids, stopped to take a leak before he went into his like hunting area. And that buck was watching him like take a leak, like 20, yeah. 20 yeah. 30 yards away through the brush, just like staring dead at him. He's like, dude, 
He's like, he texts me right away. He's like, God I blew it. Blew it. Yeah. He's like, it literally washed <laughs> me and take a leak. And so he said, but he just turned around, calmly walked away. He's like, and I sprinted <laughs> because I knew where he was going to like to yeah. that spot. And it was like, and he ended up killing it the next morning out, out of the bed. He got up. He knew exactly where it was bedded from that night and killed it the very next morning. His wife wasn't even out of the bed yet. And he was like, got it. I'm like, you can't, you can't, you can't even envision that story. That's so cool. Last year, very similar story. It's like I had a good year last year. I killed the biggest year I've ever killed in Kansas, but I also killed this buck. Um, I have a small lease like close to my house. There's only like 30 huntable acres there. And, you know, this is a spot that I mostly just hunt with my dad. It's like something that we kind of do together, right? I don't hunt it too hard. Like it doesn't typically hold mature deer. They may pass through. Um, but there was one mature deer that I had camera that I had pictures of on camera. He was old. He was on his way down. He was maybe like 120 inches, but he was, you know, I knew he was like six and a half plus. And that was the only deer I was really interested in killing out there. And I ended up, I couldn't get into this spot that I, you know, figured I could probably have my best chance of killing him until like, gosh, I think it was like third week of October, second week of October. It was like the first time where it worked out where I had the right wind and could get in there. And I ended up going in there. I found that deer in his bed walking in. And I killed him from the ground. And I've never killed a whitetail in Wisconsin from the ground before. But, like, just, like, that coming together, like, it doesn't really matter, like, what the deer was, what he scored. Like, that experience, like, that was probably my highlight of last yeah. season, right? Oh, for sure. For sure. For sure. It's, like, it's, it's just cool. Like, it's all those other parts and pieces that yeah, really make like, fun. Yeah, like, build the story and build the experience. And, yeah. you know, I – so I have just a hair under five acres, and I've said this, but – um last year I passed up, like, I just wanted to like kill a deer on my property. You know what I mean? Like I, you figure I have five acres total on my house and you know, I got my yeah. yard and my house. And so I'm really only hunting like a couple acres, but it's like perfect little pinch point, like coming past the pond, like right through the woods. And I passed up on the doe. I was getting ready to shoot the doe and then her fawn come bumbling in just like Bambi style. And I was like, ah, I was like, I want to do it, but I don't want to do it that way. You know what I mean? Like, I don't <laughs> yeah. want to tarnish. I don't want to, because A, I got to talk to my kids about it that are super young. You know, at that point, they were like four and two. And then, you know, I just, it, it would just tarnish the experience for me. But I was like, I, that for, for, and like going back to your thing basically is, um, you know, getting that dough on the ground and like having that story. Like, yeah, I don't have big bucks walk through, but who cares? Like, yeah. it's still going to yeah. be a super fun time. So, totally. Are you guys doing a method tour this year or was that a one time? Oh yeah. Good question. Yeah. So this will actually be our third year filming it. So like we always film it obviously like the year before because like due to product release schedules. So, uh, the, the second one, the one that got filmed last year will get released this year. And then we're filming another one this year, um, which obviously nobody will see till next year, but yeah, we're going to keep that series on. And then we actually started a new series too, um, which is, I, I'm even more excited about called the gauntlet, um, but that's all product development. So that stuff, unfortunately, like we film it and then we can't show it for two years because we're on a two year product cycle. But that whole series is really going to dive into like um, the product testing and like development schedule. So like stuff I was wearing last year, like that's stuff that won't get come to market until 2024, but really like giving everybody kind of like a glimpse into like, how much lab testing we do, what goes into like actually prototyping these things, like how long these products spend in the field, like 
and get tweaked and changed and like updated and fixed before, you know, we release this stuff to the public. So I think that's going to be really interesting and hopefully like cool for people to see. It's like, Oh, whoa, like this stuff that I'm super excited about and gets released this year. Like that's been in the field for two years, like getting tweaked and better and perfected. Um, I think it'll just be cool for people to see. So dude, I'm excited about that. Yeah. That's talking about it that I'm ready to watch it right now. Yeah. Yeah, and you know it's going to be good because yeah. all their videos are fantastic. Mm-hmm. So it's like you know it's going to be good. Um, I got to, I got to, I got to joke a little bit. How much time do you spend on the first light buy sell trade on Facebook? Because I know Kevin, <laughs> I know, I know Kevin's on there. Uh, you know, I used to spend more than I do now. Um, <laughs> yeah. Hey, I don't uh, know if you, I don't, I don't know if you've heard, but people want windproof garments. Have you heard that? Well, that's. I don't know if you've yeah, heard that. I, I have. <laughs> I have heard that, and lucky for them, um, this year, 2022, <laughs> is a big year for first light whitetail and windproof. It is. Yeah. It's fantastic. I, I, you saying that you have a two-year cycle on that, though, that probably just has to, like, burn because, like, you're, like, you know, for instance, like, the windproof on the solitude and the, um, and on the sanctuary, it's just, like, yeah, like, I want to tell you people that we are doing this, but like, we can't tell you until we're ready to tell yeah. you. And it's just like, that, that has to burn. Well, yeah. I mean, so just to put in perspective, you think about releasing that this year, right? So that stuff, like I knew about that. Are we going to have that baked in 2020? Right. And we were working on that and specifically the windproof thing. I was working on that for almost two years before that. And the reason, I mean, I don't know how deep you want to go to windproof, but like the reason that it's kind of taken as long as it has is like, when, when, it, when a garment is windproof, whether it's a textile or a membrane or whatever, like inherently it's normally loud, right? Like if you think of like a rain jacket, that's windproof, but it's loud, right? Think of like a traditional puffy jacket, um, that's going to be windproof, but it's crinkly and it's noisy. So the tough like cookie to, or the tough thing to figure out there, right? Like cookie to crack is how do you make something windproof, but yet keep it quiet? And that's something we really get at first sight is make really insanely quiet whitetails here. And I wasn't willing to give that up, right? Just to say, oh, well, it's windproof. So, you know, we spend a lot of time working with our vendor partners and figuring out how to kind of not not only keep the gear at the level it's at in terms of its noise and performance, but add that windproof component. And this is kind of the first year where now our customer and everybody in First Light Buy, Sell, Trade is going to see that, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the that's site is, um, it's a blessing and a curse, you know, because A, when you switch to Spectre, which we're getting ready to jump into here in a second, I I had all um, Cypher. I felt Cypher for me was the best kit and, and it was the only kit really available in the Catalyst system and, and Solitude and stuff. And so that was a blessing because I was able to get rid of that cipher stuff on there. And probably yeah. I sold it. Probably I was working here. It was probably like a day, two days. I sold like almost my entire kit and then I was like, okay, cool. Now I'm a pro member. So now I can go ahead and replenish <laughs> that kit. So, um, with all that said, man, let's dive into, um, to specter. Cause I think in the market right now, I mean, I know I'm just a human and I'm not a deer, but to me, it's probably one of the coolest looking patterns right now. Um, you know, I, I think I have everything Spectre from, well, my bow last year, my V3 was Spectre. Um, I got, I have the, um, Alpha Burley Pros, um, inspector, um, just everything. So in, in terms of that, like, let's dive into creating a pattern that's very specific to whitetail and, and uniquely your own. And then like kind of like how that all transpired and, and like when you guys made that decision to switch completely to a whitetail specific product. Yeah. Um, well, no, that's a good question. I appreciate you kind of 
asking it because you know that was something that you know consumed gosh four years of my life three and a half years of my life right before that came to market and you know really what we know about camouflage today is like effective camouflage is something that breaks up the humans out uh human outline right like um unlets um another game we pursue like they perceive a human outline as a predator right or as something that they should be worried about as something that's foreign so the more effectively you can break up that outline the more effective the camouflage pattern is and i appreciate you like saying that it looks cool i think it does yeah. too but frankly at the end of the day like how it looks to us yeah, doesn't matter at yeah, all, right? Yeah, sure. Um, and so, you know, we we dove into and kind of started our foray in developing camel patterns with Fusion. That was the first one we developed. Um, we worked with um, a couple of engineers and camo developers to develop this algorithm, right, that was the most effective in breaking up human outline but also mimicking like the shapes and patterns and color palettes that are, that, you know, we see in nature, because even though most of these undulates can't see the same colors we do, the colors that they do see, right. Are going to appear that. So like, even if greens are slightly more gray, right. Like what's on the camo is also going to mimic that green. That's slightly more gray. So there's something to the color palette as well. Um, but anyways, so like, we went through that whole process. We built this algorithm um, and we developed Fusion first. We used that same algorithm and kind of tweaked it a little bit to build Cypher. Um, but both of those were really like developed to where the hunter and you know whatever he, the, he or she was pursuing was at the same level, right? Because like you think of Western hunting, you're typically on the ground, you're typically eye to eye with your query, right? Um, and it has to effectively break you up. So Fusion was a little bit darker you know, that works better in like shaded areas, darker timber, et cetera. Cypher was a little bit lighter and more open. Um, there's less uh, micro breakup, right? So that was really designed for more like prairie, um, high alpine, like where you didn't have stuff around you. And what we realized was like both of those worked well for whitetails. I killed a shit ton of whitetails in those patterns, yep. as did a lot of, other a lot people, of people, right? Yep. Yep. But like all of these things you're talking about, like, incremental percentages of like tipping the odds in your favor and what we realized is that while these were effective we could make a better pattern specifically for whitetails and what i mean by that is like whitetails see slightly different than elk do right whitetails see slightly different than or are more tuned into things slightly different than mule deer are so we also hunt whitetails from an elevated position so like, if you think about being at an elevated position, that engagement angle changes, which how the whitetail sees you is gonna be you know, perceivably different. Um, when we're in a tree, we always have the sky as our backdrop. Even if you have good side and back cover, there's always that lightest portion of like a color palette behind you. So basically we took all of those variables, right? Like all those things I kind of just mentioned, it's like put it in this algorithm and try to figure out how to kind of take the foundation of what we already created with these other patterns and optimize it or maximize it to be the most effective for whitetails. Um, so that was really the starting point. And then, you know, tweaking it from there. Cause like for whitetails, you have to have both a macro and a micro breakup, right? Because macro breakup is what's gonna dissolve your human outline at distance. Well, if you're sitting on the edge of a food plot and that buck steps out 300 yards away, 
you need macro breakup to make your body disappear. Cause if you just have like a sticks and stems pattern or all micro, like you're going to turn into a blob at that distance. Right. But then when that buck hopefully gets to 20 yards or 30 yards, right. That's where the micro breakup actually dissolves your human body shape and outline. So like we really tweaked the continuously tweak the ratios of that macro to micro to optimize a pattern for kind of both of those situations. Um, you know, so that was part of it. Obviously, tweaking the shapes themselves was part of it to be the most effective in terms of disrupting the human outline. Um, looking at it, the other thing that was really important to me was like, if we're going to build a whitetail camel pattern, that pattern needs to work from south to north, east to west, opening day to late season, right? So like, that's where kind of the color palette comes in, where it's like, what is the best color palette that's effective for all of those things? Because I think it's ridiculous. Nobody should have two sets of whitetail camel, right? Like a guy that hunts in the Midwest should not be buying a different camouflage pattern than a guy that hunts in the South, right? So it's like, we got to make this thing work for everybody, right? So I guess to not get too long-winded and it's like taking all of those variables and just like field testing and lab testing and like using like undulate vision tests and talk. I mean, I spent hours on the phone with, um, you know, deer biologists and like understanding like the biology of a white-tailed deer's eye and like kind of just putting all of those pieces into that algorithm, into this process. And like eventually, you know, three, three and a half years later, like spitting out the best version you could create for that pursuit. All right, everyone, we need to take a quick break from the Whitetail Talk with Greg to thank our show sponsor, Toby Burdett, with Burdett Taxidermy and Legends Big Game Recovery. You know, as hunters, we always strive to make the best shot possible, but sometimes things just happen. If you're in Ohio or the surrounding states and you find yourself in a situation where you need help tracking, give him a call at 740-281-6435. Thanks, everyone. Good luck this hunting season. Now let's get back into the conversation. So, and that kind of makes me wonder too, like, um, I had some conversations today and, and some just in general too, um, about your main competitor in that field, um, in terms of like boutique clothing and the, yeah. the color palette and how it's completely different than most of the other ones. So you're, you're not getting a lot, you're getting a lot more grays and whites and browns. You're not getting so much of the darker greens like you would find in, in not only your clothing, but you know, your real trees, your mossy oaks, your under armors, whatever have you, like you're not, you're getting more of like a, a darker green color for the whitetail as opposed to the gray. Like, and I, mm-hmm. I think the reason behind that was based on that eye study. So I, I kind of want to dive in a little bit more if you can, if, if you remember much about it, but like how that study all yeah. kind of transpires and how that, how that process actually works. Yeah. So you, you kind of need a mix of both. Right. And the reason being is that like, if you think about the sky, the sky is always your backdrop. That's going to be that white, blue, gray, et cetera. Right. So like you're going to need some of that to blend into, you know, because you're kind of what, when you're hunting in the West, like you're always like, okay, I can't get skyline. Right. You never want to get skyline as white hunters, like we're putting ourselves in a situation every time we go out there to get skyline. Like we're elevated above the game we're hunting. So we have to like take that into consideration. Um, so, well, you do want some of that where the problem with that lies is when you talk about like reflectivity. So if you have, let's say you just have like a piece of like a white vehicle, right? If you have a white vehicle, that basically what's happening is like as the sunlight is coming down, as the light is reflecting off of it, it's reflecting all um, of the color spectrum. So even though we see it as white, it's reflecting 
yellows, blues, reds, green, like all of that is getting reflected back. So while we as humans, our eye can't pick up the individual spectrums of color, right? Like undulates can and white-tailed deer can. What they really tune into is blues. So if you have too much blue or too much gray or too much white in the pattern, even though to us as humans, we're like, oh, it's only a little bit of blue. It's only a little bit of white. Like blue is getting reflected off of that. And they're picking up on that, right? So while you need some to really disrupt the shape and battle the fact that you have the sky behind you, too much of it is actually like you're going to be glowing out there. Um, so that's a big part of like why we do have like the lightest Pantone, which is going to reflect some of those grays and blues, is our furthest back as it looks in the pattern. But then we also have these other colors, right? And the other thing, too, that's kind of interesting um, in going through this process, you know, we learned a lot about is, like, a lot of times, like, before I got into camo development, I was thinking, like, oh, like, camo, it's just, like, you pick a bunch of drab colors and kind of, like, throw them on to, like, break up, you know, the human outline. But certain Pantones or certain colors at distance will actually blob together. So even though they look different to us close up, at further distances, they basically become the same. So you're also trying to figure out, it's like, what's the best, you know, array of Pantones or array of colors that's going to keep you from blobbing um, at given distances, and they're going to remain kind of individual and separate, um, at least to an undulate's eye, right, or a white-tailed deer's eye. No, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. So thanks for thanks for taking the deep dive in that, because I think you know, to some people, it's just like, well, it's just, it's just camo pattern. You know I can I mean? see why it takes four years to develop no joke, a camo right? pattern. <laughs> <laughs> no, right? That's why he's sitting there going through this. And you're like, his eyes are starting to get glossy. Well, that, that ties well, right. So, go, ahead. go ahead, Greg. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I mean, I was say so much of it too. That's like, you can sit and theorize about this, you know, and look at it in a computer screen all day long. But what it really matters is like that it's effective in the field, you know? So like, that's why it takes so long. Cause it's like, we can work on it, work on it, work on it, but, like, we got to put it in the field and make sure it excels there because that's all I care about, right? Like, I don't care if it looks good in the computer screen. I don't care if it looks good hanging in your closet. Like, when you spend your hard-earned money on a piece of first-light gear, which I know is not cheap, like, that better help you when you're in the tree stand, right, or I'm not doing my job. Uh, mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, you, you painted the picture perfect. I couldn't imagine the amount of work that went with you guys for trying to hide that pattern in the testing phase because, like <laughs> – you have the luxury now. So camo kind of works in both ways, right? Like, so now, like, not only do you get to test new pieces, like the origin or the source, and it's like, well, we we in pictures probably can't tell a difference in that so much now because it's all the same pattern. So um, yeah. it always cracks me up, Going not going back to the buy-sell trade group too, but, like, anytime, like, I mean, you've been, you've been in the pictures too. It's like, oh, Greg's got lacrosse boots i wonder if we're getting lacrosse boots <laughs> oh, look, 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 there's a zipper on this pocket but not on that picture like ooh, that's it. i'm sure you guys love seeing that stuff though because it, it helps a great it helps generate some buzz with what you got going on you know god forbid yeah. anytime ranella gets in something or or yanni gets in something <laughs> it's like did you see those pants yanni was wearing it looks like they had knee pads <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a it's a fine balance there right like and when we're when you're on a you know, two-year product cycle, sometimes a three-year development cycle, like, obviously, it's hard to kind of keep that stuff hush-hush while also, like, getting in the field and testing it, but at a certain point, like, you know, you're never going to avoid all of it, and to your point, like, sometimes it's okay, and as long as it's not, like, right when we start, you know, testing this stuff and developing it, like, it just, it kind of comes with the territory, right? Oh, for sure. I think Taylor's told us, too, is, like, 
I don't want to be the guy that messes that up. Yeah. He's how nervous he was <laughs> yeah. with it and stuff. So, so like, let's let's talk yeah. about that a little bit, like it. the testing and evaluation process, like with the yeah. with the guys you send this stuff to. I'm sure they sign like NDAs and all that stuff, but uh, is there a time frame on that? Like, how do they, you give them like, hey, we're going to use this for this season or a month or whatever, and we want you to give us feedback so we can make changes or improve it? Yeah, for sure. So it, it's like we have like a general framework, but it also becomes somewhat product specific, right? So like just speaking from the general framework perspective, like for example, you know, most of the 2024 products at this point, I'm into, you know, third, fourth prototypes of those. And that's been like what the last year of my life has been. It's like, okay, we're lab testing textiles. We're lab testing new installations. Um, you know, we're doing all of the stuff that we can do pre putting something in the field to build on paper, the best product possible. Right. So we'll get to a point in this year. So it's 2022 right now. I'm talking about 2024 product where, I'll get, you know, let's call it 15-ish of those garments built up based off of like everything we've done the last year or two, you know, in our eyes, build the best garment possible. And then I have my, you know, my kind of core group of guys and gals where it's like, that's all they'll hunt in this entire year, including myself. So those garments are get a full year of, of field testing this year. We'll be collecting data, you know, collecting comments, all that stuff. Then we'll go back to the drawing board on those and be like, okay, these are the 10 things that need to get fixed for this piece. We need to switch out the lining fabric for this piece because it didn't stretch as much as it need to. You know, we need to decrease the insulation in the body of this piece and increase it in the body of this piece or what, what have you, right? So we'll go back, we'll do all of those changes. And then basically after all of those changes are done, that gear will go back into the field next year, 2023 to an even larger group. So now we're talking like, you know, 50 to 70 people will be running that stuff and we'll kind of do the same thing, right? We'll collect feedback, you know, more data, X, Y, and Z. And if we still need to make changes at that point, then we'll do so again before the gear actually gets released to the public in 2024. So really by the time anybody can go on our website and buy it, there's at least two full years, if not more of testing, uh, field testing. That doesn't even include lab testing, right? That's gone into pieces. That's insane. Yeah, it's great. That's insane. It's yeah. cool to hear. I didn't know that that's how far you guys were at. I figured it was going to be like maybe like you're doing stuff for this year that's out next year just based on when people get stuff and when people are talking about it or like whatever. And so it's like, but to know that it's like he's looking, I mean, 2024. Like I might draw for Kansas in 2024. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and some of the stuff's even longer, right? Like the the we just – I think it was last week, right? Just uh, released or teased that we're, uh, we had a whitetail tree stand pack coming out. You know, that was almost, that was more of a three-year project, right? Just because like, there's just more and different stuff that goes into it. And, you know, when we wanted to release it, it wasn't ready yet. We still had changes to make. And like, you know, I'm just personally not willing to put out something unless it's a hundred percent. So while it sucked to not release that thing when we wanted to, it's like, okay, we got to pull it back because we need to do this other stuff, you know, to make these other changes to make it better before it goes to market. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, because that's, that's something that has caught our eye. Um, as someone who's, we're both that way, I guess I should say we're gear, yeah. we're gear dudes. Like and I, all of us are gear dudes, right? You're, you're like the pit, you're yeah. like the top level gear dude, <laughs> but like 
you know, I've, I've always been, okay, I'm running this Eberly stock or I have this bag or I'm looking at this mystery ranch. You know, I have my eye on the tree house. Well, the tree house wasn't available due to COVID issues. Okay. Well, there's, you know, what can I get? What's the whitetail bag? And there's so many options for guys that want to chase elk or chase muleys, but it's like, what's that good whitetail bag that has everything I need so I can bring my camera arms, bring my, you know, my sticks, my, my stand, my saddle stuff. And then, and then Greg enter, enters the conversation and comes out with probably <laughs> the, I mean, I've watched just about every video of you talking about it. That thing is sweet, man. So let's dive into, I know that was a labor of love from, from you. Let's dive into that bag. Yeah, that, that was, uh, that was probably the most challenging development um, that I've been a part of at first sight for the whitetail line. Um, and not challenge, I mean, I guess, to be honest, frustrating at times, but like challenging and just t- to meet exactly what you just talked about. Like bags are different than clothes, right? And people have such strong opinions about what they want their bag to do. And for someone like you, right, who needs to bring a camera arm in um, versus someone like me who, if, if I have a camera in the tree with me, somebody like I got a camera guy that's carrying, like I'm never bringing that stuff in myself. So like, but we want, we want, you know, maybe 75% of the same thing in a pack, but that 25% can be so varied. Um, there's certain guys that they're, they need their pack to carry a tree stand in every single time they walk into the woods. There's other guys that, you know, they have their pre hung sets and they're going to those every time they'll never carry a tree stand. in. so, because there's so much variability in like what we want these packs to do, I knew I was never going to be able to design a pack that would, you know, fulfill a hundred percent of every whitetail hunter's needs. But if I could get to like 80, 85%, then like that's making every, hopefully everybody happy. Right. Yep. Um, So that was kind of the goal with this thing. Like it had to be able to carry a bow. It had to be able to carry um, climbing sticks. It had to be able to carry a tree stand. It had to be able to um, have enough capacity where when we got to like November, obviously November, but even like December, like you can fit enough layers in there for those late season hunts, but it had to be organized enough and simple enough and be able to pack down enough where you could still use it for your early season hunts when you're not carrying as much stuff in, right? Uh, it had to carry weight well. Like that was one of my biggest issues with every other whitetail pack in the market is like as soon as you put a tree stand on that thing, even if it's a light one, you know, call it nine, 10 pounds, like they just didn't carry that weight very well. And it sucked carrying a tree stand in that way. Right. So I wanted to fix that problem. It had to be simple um, because every single time I'm either going into the woods in the dark and unpacking that thing in the dark, or I'm coming out of the woods in the dark and I have to repack it. Right. So like if there's straps everywhere and it's not intuitive, like putting it together, taking it apart, like it's a pain in the butt to do when it's pitch blackout typically you're running later than you want to, right? So you're in a hurry. Um, so a lot of the features of the bag were designed around that process. Like I literally listed out, it's like, okay, when I go into the woods, so when I get out of my truck, what do I do from the time I step out of my truck until I'm in my stand ready to hunt, right? And design the bag so that it fills or it works with me on all those steps. And then it also has to do the opposite. You know, from the time I take my bow off of its hook or I start to climb down, like what's my order of operations from getting out of the tree, getting back to the truck. And how do we make a bag that's intuitive for packing, unpacking, getting gear in, getting gear out. And it works with you instead of against you. Um, And that was really like where the design of this pack started. It's like, how can we make the things we need to do as whitetail hunters easier on ourselves and more efficient? 
Yeah, and for sure. And I think like for for us, it's like you know going back to like the saddle side. So I don't experience much of the tree stand stuff, but I can totally see what you were talking about. Like, there's no. I'm just thinking of some of the packs I've had, and it's just like, okay, that wouldn't have worked. Okay, that that field and stream one that I had when I first started hunting, that's definitely not going to work. Like, even the Everly stock one that I have now, like it's a lightweight day pack, but it's not. I'm still carrying my stand or whatever with me, even my sticks. Like I can't really put my sticks or my platform on it, but. You know, as guys, you know, we're we're thinking about on the saddle side. Okay, well, I'm I'm, I'm gonna pack my 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 saddle the same way that I'm gonna need it in opposite directions, yep. right? And so, you know, you can think of the same way with with that bag. And one thing that I found that was super cool was just, I mean, you put a ton of effort into it, but just the the stowability of the straps. There's nothing I hate worse than having. I mean, having all that Molly is cool, but like you're not gonna technically probably use maybe 20% of that Molly. Like the, some guys are really into Molly. I'm, I'm just more of a pocket guy. I just throw it in the pocket. So it's like, I don't need all these straps and buckles and stuff that are all over the place. And that's where, you know, with that bag, you can just stow them away and they're out of your way. And that's just like little things like that, man, makes such a big difference. Well, I've been accused of, you know, having some OCD tendencies, but um, <laughs> like stuff like straps hanging off or like, you know, even some of the old packs where you to like roll the ends up, like there's nothing that bothers me more than like stuff hanging and dangling. And it's just like, it's catch points. It's a potential like noise point. So there's not a strap on that bag that can't be tucked away if you're not using it. And even like the straps for the, it, let, let's say you're going to carry a tree stand in between the back panel and the bag, like all of those straps, there's a giant mesh stretch panel that when you're done with them, they just get shoved in there and you zip the bag back to the back. Like there's no Velcro, there's no, you know, like, it's just like, how can you keep this stuff organized as easy and as quickly as possible? That was like a big stick point for oh, me. For and sure. like making sure we got to that point before we released this thing. So this is just more, just a fun question, but how much effort went into making sure that your zippers are quiet? <laughs> <laughs> he rolls his eyes <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Luckily, we've got to a point where, you know, the big players in the zipper space, like nobody makes a better zipper than YKK. Like they just, they make, cause that's what they do. Right. But they've really addressed, I mean, not only with us, but the other, you know, some of our competitors too, like we've, there's so many of us that have started to demand quiet zippers. Right. That it's like, it's a little bit easier now than it was even five years ago. Right. It's like, we have some pretty cool options now. Yeah. You can definitely see, I mean, even from our perspective and we, as a, as an outdoor retailer, we have a wide variety of different products and different price points. And it's like, you can totally see, um, I mean, there, there's one particular brand that we know that we were kind of joking about that you, you shake it and it's like, this is a whitetail hunting thing and you shake it, the zippers are clinging together. And it's like, how yeah. did like, I mean, it's cool because we, we sell them and it's different price points cheaper, but like, how did that make it out of your facility? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like yeah. it just, there was no thought to it. And so, when you step up and you get into these higher brands like yourself or even sick of like you, that's what you're paying for. You're paying for all that ingenuity into mm. that product, you know? So. Well, I'm just like the camo pattern too, right? Like I'm not like, don't get me wrong. I am not ever going to tell anybody you need to wear camo to kill deer. There's a lot of deer that get killed every year in jeans and car hearts. Oh, for and sure. plant, right? Like you can do it. But again, like for me, I'm all about stacking the odds in my favor. Right. So if, my camo is so effective that even though that buck maybe pegged me or saw me grab my bow, if he's like looking through me to try and figure out what I am and that gives me the extra two seconds I need to get that shot off, like I want those odds stacked in my favor. If 
I have quiet zippers and I don't have to worry about them making a noise in an inopportune time. Like that's another thing in my favor. And I think the cumulative effect of all of those little things, like one of those things by itself is not going to determine whether you kill that buck or not. Yeah. But if yep. you stack 20 together, like I'm going to take those odds over like, you know, the opposite end of that spectrum oh, every sure. day. For sure. And then you always hear those stories where guys are like, Oh, well, heck we had that one opportunity where we were filming some content down in Southern Ohio and that guy shot that 150 literally like smoking a cigarette and is blind. I'm yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how is that possible? You know what I mean? Or, um, there's like a, a meme page on Instagram I saw and it was like, Oh, Sika came out with $1,200 coveralls to kill all the bucks that, that <laughs> for the gun guys or whatever. It's like your Carhartt coverall and it yeah. had their logo on it. I'm like, that stuff cracks me up, but there's yeah. always, there's always people. And, and, there's an ass for every seat, right? You know, it's just, it depends on what you want as an individual. And I'm not going to sit here and tell somebody that because you use XYZ product, like you're a better hunter, you're a worse hunter. Like we, we all know that like the gear helps, but it doesn't make the hunter. And it's like, you so you, you got to balance that out, but it's just a matter of preference on what you want to do. Like to some people that they value that for others, you know, some people kill deer every year with a $500, bear bow or you can buy a $1,500 RX-7 like there's such a wide variety of of that that spectrum and it just really depends on the person so um I kind of want to touch so like we've talked about the gear we've talked about everything I want to kind of we can stay kind of first light focused but for those people that may not be a first light customer like what is a necessity for Greg um, you know, going more towards layering, like what is your necessity in terms of how you're, how you're setting up your whitetail kit? Yeah, for sure. And I think like, you know, this, this stuff that I love, like it doesn't have, I mean, obviously I'm biased. Like I, I work for a company that, you know, we make really good whitetail gear and, and that's what I do. But at the end of the day, like so much of being an effective whitetail hunter, in my opinion, is having a system, right? Like, because I think one thing that, you know, whitetail hunters maybe don't pay as much attention to as we should is, um, you know, moisture management and how you build a system to deal with moisture. Because at the end of the day, like you can get away with, you know, screwing that up for certain portions of the season. But there's also a certain portion of the season where I truly believe like time in the stand directly relates or time in the saddle, like directly relates to success. And the only way you're going to be able to spend the amount of time sometimes necessary to get it done is like being comfortable. Yep. Right. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you manage your moisture and everybody thinks of whitetail hunting is like, Oh, you walk 200 yards, you climb up into a ladder stand. Like that's all you do, which sometimes that's the case, but there's other instances where, you know, there is, there's always a period of higher exertion before your period of no exertion. And if you don't deal with your moisture management during that period of higher exertion, when you get to that period of zero exertion, you're going to be miserable. I don't care if you're wearing $4,000 worth of gear, right? Like, sure. yeah. It's just the way it is. So for me, it's like it's building that system. And it's always like, what's your foundation? Your foundation is next to skin. And you need something next to skin that is going to move moisture away from your body. Because when you're walking in, I mean, even if it's, 30 degrees, right? If you're walking and you're carrying a tree stand or you're walking through snow, or maybe you're in like bluff country in the Midwest, or maybe you have to walk two miles into your public land spot, 
even if you're not like sweating at the liquid level, like you're perspiring at a gaseous level and that moisture can collect on a garment. So you need something that's going to move that away from your body so it can evaporate. So for me, like I love like a merino wool blend next to skin. So like from first light, I'll use like our wick system, right? Our wick base layers. Um, it's a merino nylon blend that manages my moisture really well. And that's always going to be next to skin for me. Regardless of the um, season, right? Oh yeah. I mean like, so Wisconsin opens up in two days or yeah, two days. Is it Thursday? It opens yeah. on Saturday Okay. and it's probably going to be like 70, 75 here. Like that'll be all I yep. wear. Yep. Right. But that's also what I have on next to skin. You know, when I'll be in uh, Southern Ohio for late season this year, when it'll be, you know, probably in the teens, like that's always my next to skin layer. And I think the the old adage, like cotton kills, right? Yeah. There's nothing more true. I mean, just think about how many times that you've been, take, take the hunting aspect away. You you go to a football game or whatever and your, your feet are freezing. Well, it's cause you're probably yeah. wearing cotton socks. I mean, I have cotton socks on right now, but I'm sitting in an air conditioned office, but like there's, yeah. and I've experienced it too, where it's like, um, you know, when I first got in the first light gear, I had just a catalyst system. Yep. So it's all catalysts. And I, I got catalysts down to like the mid thirties before I was really starting to feel it. And, um, just taking that jacket off, walking in or now unzipping your bibs, walking in and venting that air out. Um, regardless what system you're doing, like you said, managing that heat and managing that moisture walking in and then putting everything back on. is such a game changer. Yeah, for sure. And I think like, you know, it, it's, for me, it's always kind of a, I look at my system as like a three-part system, right? So I have my next to skin is always part one. So I really like a Merino blend. Um, even like a, a syn- any type of synthetic is really good next to skin. So a poly or a nylon, because those synthetics move moisture better. They dry faster, which is really important. So think of your like next to skin as your foundation. It should be something that actively manages moisture, right? Then my next piece, which I call like my mid-layer system, this is what I call like active insulation. Um, so like the oldest form of active insulation, the most tried and true form of active insulation is going to be like a fleece. So, you know, what a fleece does, and now there's way more technical active insulations, like our source jacket, perfect example of active insulation. But what, what that piece is going to do, or even like a, a origin hoodie or any type of fleece, right? What that's going to do is it's going to provide some insulation, but it's still going to allow that moisture that your base layer is starting to pull away from your body to continue to move through your system. So it's not trapping any moisture. It's breathing super well. If it does get wet, it's going to dry, but it's also providing a layer of insulation. So that's always going to be the second piece of my puzzle. So for me, it's like I'm going in with as little as possible. If it's really cold, maybe it's my base layer and that mid layer, that active insulation piece. Um, if it's not so cold, that active insulation piece is the first thing I put on when I get in the stand because it's going to help dry out my base layer and it's not going to let my core temperature fluctuate, you know, in this really big up and down. So that's kind of like my piece of kit, um, both top and bottom. Um, a lot of times, like I can get away without an active insulation in the bottom. I'll just have like my outerwear on, which I'll talk about next, but I'll vent it, like have my bibs wide open or whatever. Um, and then my third piece is going to be my outerwear. And what I want from outerwear is the opposite of what I want from my base layer. I want something that locks in, that protects, that traps, that uses my body heat, right? So I get to stand. I'm going to let my core cool down a little bit by pulling my active insulation on my top, you know, 
I might zip up my um, bibs on the bottom at that point. But once I get to a comfortable temperature where I'm not, I don't feel like I'm sweating, I haven't got cold yet, then I'm going to put my outerwear on. I want my outerwear to actually trap all that heat, right, to keep it in. So that's where, like, our solitude with that wind barrier, right, or sanctuary with the wind barrier, even the catalyst with the, um, the way those, um, those two textiles are glued together. All of those resist that heat leaving your system. So you're not like using your body as a furnace, right? And that's what I call passive or, you know, inactive insulation is like when I'm just sitting there, I don't want any of that heat to be lost. So that's like the third part of my system for hunting whitetails anyways. Yeah. And I'm, I'm super excited. Um, I mean, I, I knew just how warm the solitude was last year. And so just even getting that little bit of the, like we had mentioned earlier too, with the windproofing and just really retaining all that heat, like I'm gonna be sweating. I'm be sweating because it was such a big difference. I mean, the Klamath by far is my favorite piece of gear. Like, like yep. we talking about the midweight. Like, I love that thing to death, man. It's so freaking comfortable. The stretch, like, it's the perfect mid layer. And so, I'm excited to try these new products as you keep continuing to develop them because I know it's only going to continue to improve. So, yeah, and that Klamath, right? That's the perfect example of like you know your active layer, your mid layer. Um, yeah, and then you get to the like, once you go beyond that, whether it's like temperature range or you know you start to cool down. It's like, that's when you want to lock everything in. You put your static insulation in something that doesn't breathe as well, but has a lot more insulation value. And like I said, it really like preserves and saves that body heat that you're creating. The one thing I haven't got into. So right now I'm doing, I'm doing wick Klamath. I have, I don't know if I have a catalyst system in the new, the new pattern. I think I do. I, yeah. Yeah. I have the catalyst system as well. Um, for like more of a mid season, like November, early November, and then jumping into the solitude. Um, one thing, is there something in there that you can think that like someone like myself who just kind of has like the very textbook order of things in terms of what you've have put out in the past, like what kind of piece do you think I should add, um, into that system to kind of help change it up a little bit outside? Let's, I mean, even the newer products too, because I, I, I mean, I know the newer products are there. I just haven't messed with them enough to even dive in, but I'm thinking like, I've never really been like a vest guy, but I know like yep. yourself and Kevin, you know, sometimes talk about having that solitude vest or or is it there's a is there a sanctuary vest or no no sanctuary salt, vest just salt okay vest. okay so, yep i was for some reason i'm thinking sanctuary bib or um hand muff but what yeah regardless like what's that extra piece that i could probably in because this would be helpful to you too because you're kind of kind of building your kit right now mm-hmm. as we as we talk so yeah yeah i think I, i'm not like i'm not like a casual vest wearer like i don't wear vests you know when I'm out in public, not that like, I don't like them. It's just like, it doesn't, that's not part of like a clothing wardrobe. Right. But in the whitetail woods, I love them. And like, the reason I love a vest is because it's going to keep my core warm, right. Without adding bulk to my arms. And that's like, for me, that is critically important for almost the majority of my season. Like even with the other pieces I have to layer, like if we're in the upper thirties, I can get away with like a layering system similar to what we just talked about. I might add one more piece, right. But put that solitude vest on over the top. And it's like, it's trapping all that heat in my core without adding bulk to my arms. And we have some other vests too, that work really good, even as layering pieces. Right. So it's like, you could put that catalyst vest. That's another one that I think is like, you know, flies into the radar but like i love that piece in my white tail kit because you know i have my my next next skin my base layer i have my active insulation i might do a catalyst vest on top of that then because that's kind of locking in core heat's not adding a lot of bulk and then you know if i'm doing an all-day sit 
that might take me, you know, through the first three or four hours, right? And then if it's cold out, I may need to put one more piece on, but that's another barrier of, of wind, of losing heat, of, you know, trapping that heat in. That's going to keep me warm through the, the middle of the day, right? When it's been eight hours since I've done anything active, right? So I think those vests and like in that scenario can be super effective. Yeah, I could totally see that. Like I'm, I'm just visualizing myself like in the situation where I'm getting cold around that one o'clock noon, one o'clock, and you're just like really starting to drag. You, you know, you have like you're, you're in the home stretch, you're in the downslide of, of the, of the hunt, and you know, having like a Klamath or even um an Origin hoodie, uh, with like, yes. a, you know, like a solitude vest, I could see that being like the perfect situation for like a forty degree, like low fifties, forty. Like I could see like I'm, I get cold, so like. I could see that being like the perfect scenario because then I don't have all the extra bulk because I'm not really like cold to the bones. I'm just like chilled and that would be yeah. good. Yeah, I agree. And I think like, you know, for us, like on the first light side, you know, we introduced the kit link system which mm -hmm. is essentially like a built-in hand warmer where it's like you can use your body heat to keep your hands warm. But even if you're not running first light, like adding an actual hand muff to yep. your kit, I think wonders because as bow hunters, like we're always fighting keeping our hands warm, but wanting to be, you know, have dexterity both on our release hand and our bow hand. So any way that like you can wear minimal or no gloves, but keep your hands warm, like that's kind of the game changer too, right? Cause the last thing you want to be doing in the heat of the moment is like trying to get gloves off and being like moving around and like, where do you put those gloves? Do they fall out of your sand or your saddle. Like we got to keep our hands free. So I think, you know, from like a low price point accessory, first light or not, like yeah. that muff is a game changer. Yeah. it definitely has my attention right now too, because I actually dropped what is is it the guide light glove the lighter the light season yeah. is that right um so yeah. I have the um the green ones of those and I dropped one like during a hunt <laughs> and it was just like or like my uh is it the talus fingerless gloves I have those too yeah. um yeah because the fingerless I mean that's where it's at especially when you're trying to text and you can't but you're like you want to get a bigger glove but you're also like not only do you want to shoot but you have to play those games right and you can't really like I, I couldn't really play the game so much with the bigger gloves. He's laughing because I'm like always doing something in the stands. Watching a football game. Yeah, I watched the football game last year. <laughs> but uh, hey, I'm in Central Ohio, man. Go Bucks. Um, <laughs> but uh, but you know having having that piece where you can kind of tuck your hands in. Um, I don't know how much product feedback you got on this, but with that kit link system, so I had it with the, the obviously the Solitude, and I believe the Spectre ones came. The Catalyst system had it as well. Yep. I always found. Like I couldn't, you know how it has a double zipper and the audience watching is not going to, well, hearing is not going to be able to see, but you know, I put my hands both right here on, on my chest. Like I've always felt like a more drafty by using that as a, you know, like I'm getting it in the bib, yeah. but I still felt that cold, like seeping in through my jacket. Cause I had it unzipped and then obviously yeah. I'm in. And so I, I found myself just honestly just gravitating more towards the, the jacket pocket you know, as I'm, as I'm sitting and not to mention like being in a saddle, like I have all the straps kind of like right here at my hips. Right. And so it's kind of in the way sometimes, but that's where I've always found just like putting it in my pocket or putting it in my, in the, the Klamath, like in the kangaroo pouch or, and so having that bit or that uh, muff, I think that would be the perfect, like just natural placement for me to kind of drop that in. Greg, I ask you, like, is there a point where you just have to tell yourself, that's enough. Like, are you, are you a perfectionist when you're designing all this stuff? I mean, I'm just curious about that. All the details we've been going over. Yeah. I know I, w I would be, it'd be hard to break away from something like that. 
I wish my wife was here to answer that question because she'd be the perfect person. Like, she's the one that literally asked, and she's like, you need to stop working. Like, you need to stop, like, give yourself a break. Because, and I think, like, I know it probably sounds like the cliche answer, but, like, it just, it kind of, it's, it kind of is, like, how I'm wired anyways. Um, and I, 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 like, I have very high standards for myself. And I think, like, I know how valuable my money is and I know how hard it was and like how much sacrifice it was to buy some of this stuff. Like before I started working for this company, I mean, even like a bow, right? Like when I go buy a bow and spend whatever, you know, X number of thousand dollars on this bow and the accessories, like I expect it to be the best and to work. And it's really important to me that like, my customer has the same experience. Like the last thing in the world I want is like put something out and then, you know, have you guys be like, well, you know, like everything else is pretty cool, but like, I'm not really sure what happened with that one. Right. So like at the end of the day, I do feel like I'm kind of signing my name on all this stuff. So like I, it's, it is hard for me to turn it off until we get to that point where I'm like, okay, this is the best it can be. Like we nailed it. Like, let's go. Well, and do you feel any pressure? Um, I mean, I guess how do I want to phrase this? Like the company got its roots in Western hunting and it's probably always going to be founded in Western hunting, but like, like let's not joke about it. Like whitetail hunting is the biggest group of hunters in the country. Like, do you feel any added pressure? Like making the, the, cause when you're making something for doll sheep or you're making something for bighorn rams, like there's a very small percentage of the hunting community that is doing that. Yeah, the yeah. yeah, the Omen waterproof stuff is kind of super cool. I have no use for any of that because it's not what I'm using as a whitetail hunter. Like, do you feel any pressure, like, being in the, probably one of the, I mean, in our opinions, one of the premier, uh, you know, clothing apparel companies, hunting apparel companies, like, as the guy? Does that does that kind of tie into, like, not being able to turn it off to or no? Yeah, you know, that, that might be part of it. That's a great question. Um, I have, like... I probably have a group of 15 guys on, you know, in my favorites on my contacts, you know, my phone. And these are like hardcore dudes. And these are the guys that are wear testing this stuff for me two seasons beforehand. And like, I spent a lot of time talking to these people. And the reason is like, to your point, like I'm one person, right? And I have a team around me at First Light that, you know, gets as much credit for what we're doing in Whitetail as I do. But I never want to be in a situation where like I'm designing gear in an echo chamber because like how I do something might be very different than how, you know, Andy may uses something or Brad Beaver uses something or Taylor Chamberlain uses something. So like having all of these guys, um, you know, to like bounce ideas off of, or like, you know, calling Levi after his, um, you know, Wyoming hunt, like asking him how stuff worked out and like having his feedback. Like I think that takes, a lot of that pressure off, but it also like, it's, it's a validation process of these ideas. Right. And I, it's, it's important to me to kind of have that team around me that like we could have these conversations and we could have this kind of like, you know, these like idea dumps after season or in season or whatever. Cause I think at the end of the day, like that's how you build like really game change. And like, I keep saying that and I hate that term. Like I think it gets overused. But, like, that's how you build innovative product. And I never want to be like a me too company, right? Like we have some really strong competitors in the whitetail space that are always pushing the envelope. And like, yeah. frankly, I love it, right? Yeah. Like I love that Sitka does and makes the product they do because 
I think it's good to have like competition breeds excellence. Right. And 100%. that's we keep pushing each other every single year to like do things. And like, that's an environment in which like I can build a new jacket next year. Right. That's noticeably different to you as the end user than the one you're wearing the year before. Right. Yeah. And that's, yeah, I'm glad you said that too, because it, it for sure, like it only elevates your game and you know, it kind of a two part, like on the competitor side, like that only elevates your game. But then on the other part, what's good for Mark Kenyon isn't going to be good for, you know, Taylor by any means or Taylor to Levi or Levi to Brad or, you know, name, name your guy, Andy may, I mean, has a completely different need than someone in, you know, South Georgia, you know? So it's just like, you got to kind of get a good vibe of what everyone is. Because if, like you said, if you're making something in a vacuum, you know, what's good for Greg, what's good for Greg isn't yeah. good for Jordan. It isn't good for Ben. So you got to have a team behind you. So, so props to shouting out that team because I know it takes more than just a single person to make a product. So even like the wind crew thing, right. It's like, to me, like as a tail hunter, like noise is the most important thing to me in the world. Like, and that's just speaking from Greg Farrell, right. Where somebody else, like Mark, for example, he's like super willing to give up some noise or something more windproof. And it's like having those like ebbs and flows and those like kind of like you know, give a little, get a little, like, you know, these brain dumps, like, I, that's where product really evolves, and we make sure that, to, to your point, like, we're building it from the masses, right, like, 90% of the money that's spent in the hunting market every year is spent in whitetail, and as a company, it's important for us to address that, right, and we can only address that by building the best whitetail product for the majority of that 90%. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, Taylor doesn't care so much about noise when he's got lawnmowers going right next to him, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, you got it. Uh, let's change it up a little bit. I know you had some questions in here about some of his personal gear. Did you want to yeah. dive into some of that stuff? Let's yeah. go. Let's go. Let's, let's, you're not first like Greg anymore. You're just Greg the whitetail hunter. Cool. How's that sound, man? Perfect. So I just had like a general gear question. So outside of the clothing and everything, what what are your go-to products when you go to the stand every time? Yeah, I mean, gosh, we can go so many ways with that. I think, you know, like for me now, I've really evolved, I would say in the last like four to five years, my hunting style. Like I like to run and gun more. Um, I think it's, I have a ton of, like, I have as much fun hunting public close to my house as I do, you know, some of these other destination spots, because like, I like getting in places, I like getting boots on the ground. I like checking out new areas. Like I still firmly believe that like the best sit you're ever going to have in any spot is the first time you sit there. So like, I love moving and like, so I've really moved to like a lightweight kind of like setup. Um, I ran a saddle for a long time. I'll still use one every once in a while. Like totally just a personal preference thing like i always gravitate back towards the tree stand like for me like a lightweight tree stand is still it's just my preference like i'm faster to get up the tree i feel like i can sit longer i shoot better out of it like i just know i can be there longer again like taylor chamberlain i couldn't convince the guy to sit in a tree stand he's one of my best friends yeah. right like we yep. just we hunt different yep. right and that's cool so like i picked up um one of those uh, beast gear um, hang on stands a couple years ago, like love that thing. I can get it in any tree, love the way it hangs. Like it's crazy lightweight. So like, I really love that. Um, I've been using the timber ninja sticks. Those are like some of my favorite sticks right now. I love how light they are. I love how quiet they are. Like one of the things with like trees, you know, climbing sticks is like typically they're always metal and like they're always going together to pack up and coming apart. Like that's an area that seems to make a lot of noise. So 
the fact that they're carbon fiber makes them lighter, but I love how quiet they are. Um, so those are coming with me every time. Um, that's a big deal for me. Um, you know, that's kind of like my tried and true, right? Like regardless of where I'm going, I'm probably using that. And then everything else kind of varies, you know, depending on like what time of season it is, location, you know, stuff like that. Him and Jim Hole would be, he'd be, he'd be good in the bow zone. He hates noise. <laughs> you'd, be great. you'd be great in the bow zone, man. Yeah. 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 So what about arrow? We just had yeah. Uh, yeah, Troy just, Fowler yeah. on the, on the podcast and we, we, the, we did the old ranch fairy. We did the the fairy dust that, that episode just aired this week. So are you, are you on the fairy dust? Are you on the FOC train? You know, I'm, I would say I'm like a little bit like, let's say, foc is on the right right and like light and fast is on the left i would say i'm like probably slightly right of center or maybe halfway between center and like far right like there you go i'm i shoot like my setup right now i think i'm shooting like a, a 508 509 grain arrow um i don't know what my foc is honestly because like i know with my setup um it's super effective i get great penetration i get great long range accuracy like it's very tunable. Uh, I being the gear nerd, I am like, I always like from the day I started shooting archery until two years ago, I built my own arrows, like nerded out and making every single one of them, like the exact same weight, you know, like try different fletchings every year. Um, and then, yeah, it must've been about three years ago. I met Kyle Davidson at DCA arrows. You guys met Kyle before. Uh, I you know Kyle? No, no, I'll have to check that out though, because we're, okay. the, we're the same way. So yep. But this dude is like, so he's an engineer by trade. And the first time I talked to Kyle, and this is coming like, I I made my beer money in college working as a bow tech. Like I go. tuned bows, I built arrows. So like, I have quite a bit of experience doing that stuff. I still do all my own stuff. And I think I know a lot about it. The first time I talked to Kyle about arrows, I've never felt dumber in my entire <laughs> life. I was like, man, I spent a lot of time learning this stuff. And like, you're speaking a different language. So I've uh, I've recently handed over my my arrow responsibilities to him. He builds my arrows for me now. Like the dude's a wizard. Like you get a dozen arrows from him, and you get an entire sheet, every single one. He's got it weighed out. He has like the I love it. You know the differences between them. He's got the FLC written on there. Like he tests different veins with your arrow setup. Like he builds arrows to your draw length, your draw weight, the bow you're shooting. Like. And I've noticed the difference, right? Like, again, it's incremental percentages, but it was percentages in the right direction. Yeah. So, like, right now, I'm shooting an Easton Axis 300. Um, it's kind of the base of my arrow. Okay. Um, he developed and came out with his own veins last year. I was shooting the AAE hybrids before, and I've moved to his. They're called Super Sabers. Um, so I'm shooting those veins. Um, and then Broadheads... Gosh, I kind of, I, I go back and forth a bit. Right now I'm shooting um, the, I'm between two the last couple seasons, the Rage Hypodermics um, and then the, the Slackers as well. I've shot those a bit. So those are kind of my go-to broadheads right now for, for white sales. I haven't um, drawn a Western tag in the last two years, so um, haven't really had to change my setup. Um, we've definitely moved to like a fixed blade um, shot the iron wheels, um, for some Western stuff before I've had really good success with them, but that's kind of my setup right now for white tails that, and then like, um, Taylor's kind of him and Billy are kind of get me on this day six train. 
like yep. him and then yep. Jordan Bud, him, she picks them up too. And they're just a cool looking broadhead too. Like there's, I, not to be the gear nerd too, but like I want something that I've like visually appeals to me, you know, as well. But yeah, ha- having Levi on the team, he's got some swackers. So we knew that was going to, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if it works, it works, man. Yeah, for sure. I yeah. mean, I've killed with hypodermics. I'm, I'm going to shoot uh, Mega Meats this year and try those out yep. for the first time. Um, yeah. It's kind of like a good combo with the chisel tip and then having the blades. And I know you're going fixed blade, single bevel, full range fairy dust. So no, I'm I'm actually doing the the I'm G5. Messing I'm messing with you. Yeah, the M3s, the solid yep. ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think my arrow is like 5:30 this yeah. year. Okay. I'm saying you just built, you just built them yesterday, right? I just yeah. finished them up yesterday. I think I'm going to be in there. Like I think mine's like 5:15, 5:20, and that ballpark. I'm also shooting the 300s as well. The axis. Yeah, he's doing what the rip TKOs. Yeah, three hundred spine rip TKOs. <laughs> yep. Um, V3X. I like. You going V V3X this year? Are you going prime or what's the what's the verdict there? I have two bows set up right now. Um, I have my V3X, uh, my tried and true that's kind of been the go-to. Um, I also have a PSE set up this year that I'm digging big time. Um, they're doing really cool stuff over there. Um, that new E2 cam that they came out yep. with last year. It's super shootable. It tunes really well. Um, I'm I'm also the guy like I'll set up five bows every year, like decide yeah. which ones I like best. I love it. Um, just because I like doing it, you know, like I yeah. like nerding out on that stuff. And yeah, it's that's one benefit that we have here. I mean, we're we're uh, digressing here a little bit, but whatever. It's my podcast. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but uh, so we shoot a lot of bows because we're doing product reviews. We sell just about every major manufacturer that's available. So your PSEs, your primes, Matthews, Hoyts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I know Taylor and Billy are switching over. And even we talked to um, Jared Schaefer uh, from Tethered when we had our event a couple weeks ago, and he's switched over to a Bowtech. There seems to be like a little bit of a trend towards the Bowtech. The SR350 is a fantastic bow. We shot it for as fast as that thing is. It was dead in the hand. Um, the yep. Omen. Like we shot the Omen before we, you know, we had it before it was released. Super stellar bow, the inline three and five and and one and all the whole inline series. That that, that was a great bow as well. And so I know like Casey and Jonah, you know, from, from you guys and on the first light side are are shooting those. And there's just so many options now. I mean, it's hard to find a bad one. It really is, man. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm good buddies with Casey too. Like what they did with the inline man, like that solved all of the problems I had with, and I didn't have problems, right? Like when, when you kind of shoot all these things next to each other, you're being really nitpicky. But like when they moved to the inline and that cam system, like that bow got quieter because you have less cable, less string, right? Like I thought the draw cycle was improved. I thought, you know, the overall experience, like I love that. I mean, I have one of those set up too. It's just like, the cool, the, I think the cool thing about bows, like to me, when people ask me about bows, like bows are like boots, right? Like the bow companies that exist right now, they're still alive for a reason. They're all making really good bows, right? Yeah. And like what I like this year might not be what I like next year. It might not be what you like. But like for me, I always tell people, it's like, no, don't have any brand, you know, affiliation. Like go to a bow shop, go to your guys' place, shoot five or six bows which everyone feels the best to you yeah. like that's the bow you should shoot and it's good right because like all of the manufacturers that are out there and all like they're making good stuff yeah yeah it's such a and especially when we're trying to like mentally we're not really comp- i mean 
on, from the business perspective, we're not really comparing them against each other because that's just not our place to do that. That's going to be for the customer. We just want to tell you about the product, you know, but we both are, are, are kind of giving our input on it and stuff. And it's just like, damn, man, like, uh, you know, you think, oh, this one pulls better than this one. But it was like two weeks before we shot this one. You know, like the, the time difference, like we didn't shoot them all at the same time. I feel like we would have a difference yeah. of opinion. Like the Levitate, that's a stupid, crazy boat. Like, I love that thing. It, I mean, some people don't care for the way it looks, but like you can't get past it. It's only three pounds. And then, you know, yeah. and then you go to the Omen or you go to the, the inline, the inline grip, far superior than anybody else that's out there right now, in my opinion. Like the inline grip is, is fantastic. Hoyt. Hoyt compares very well too, but it's just like, man, it's just, I don't know how someone does it anymore. Like just comes in and buys it and just shoots. Um, so if you're listening, Vance Outdoors, we have all the bows that you like to shoot. <laughs> well, like, you are talking about competition, right? Like those like top five or top, top six bow manufacturers. Like, I, I mean, I shot Hoyt for a while. I went away from Hoyt for a number of years. I still try and shoot the new bow every year, but like even their new cam system, like, yeah finally got to a point where like it, for a while it felt really mechanical to me and like just personally that wasn't what i liked but like i shot the rx7 this year and it's like wow that's a sweet bow too you know like it is, it, is. it makes me wonder like and they've got the carbon game on lock i mean i, mean, I know PSE is in the carbon game but i feel like man it's just like Hoyt's been doing it for so long with the carbon. Like I'm really interested and really curious to see. I mean, I know you guys are a two year timeline. It's like, what, what, what's the Matthews of the world going to do? Like, what are the primes guys going to do? Are they going to start elite? Like, are they going to stay more aluminum? Are they going to, are these people going to try to dip their toe in the carbon? Obviously the price, the pricing structure is different. Do they want to appeal to this kind of audience or do they, they like where they are right now and in that thousand dollar market. So man, it's just, what a crazy sport that we love so much, right? There's so many damn <laughs> different options between every single thing. I mean, I could pick between 15 different gloves or 15 different bows or, you know, whatever. So it's just, it's just, I love it so much <laughs> as a gear nerd. You love it so much, man. Totally. Well, we've been going on for just about an hour and what, 15, 20 minutes. So I know we had some rapid fire questions. We told, we always like to break it up. We did this with Jordan. We haven't done it so much with everyone else though, but That's, we only did it with Jordan. Well, perfect because Jordan connected this with you. So let's go ahead. I want to hit, hit some of these wraps. You have them up on your computer. I have them. Yeah. You shoot it off, man. I'll do the next one. Or is the first one line? All right. Wisconsin guy. Don't, don't let me down on this one. Curd, <laughs> curds or fries? Curds. Nah, they have to squeak too, right? <laughs> Well, it depends. Are they there you go. are they fresh cheese curds or are they fried curds? I love it. I love it. I only get fried okay. cheese curds. So I what was <laughs> there was a, a TikTok or a, uh, I think it was you betcha or something where they were passing out. Oh, it was um what's the comedian from Wisconsin, the Green Bay, the Green Bay guy? Um, oh, Charlie Barons. Yeah, he was. They were passing out curds at a parade. That's funny. Saw, I love it. Hit him up, man. Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, what's your go-to hunting snack? Ooh. Oh, that's a good one. Now you're a sound guy, so those Pop Tart wrappers are pretty loud. I know. <laughs> Man, I don't know if I have a go to. You know what I do love? And the only this is like I uh, this is probably this is the only time I ever eat them and I probably only eat like three a year. But during hunting season, I always every year I'll revert to and have a couple of the uh, oatmeal cream pies. Oh, perfect. That's yeah. a solid choice. That's a solid yeah. choice. They're definitely in my arsenal too. Anything Little Debbie's in my arsenal yeah. for sure. Yeah. For sure. Now, 
what I'm, I am interested in, my wife picked up some uh, like discount silicone um, storage bags from like uh, TJ Maxx or something like that. I'm 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 really curious because you know, and like I love me a strawberry pop tart first thing in the morning with like a black rifle coffee, like the little can, but it's like the and then it's like the, the crinkly yeah. wrapper, and you're like, <laughs> I like muff it real fast with my muff. But all right, favorite piece of first light gear excluding excluding base layers, base layers. Yeah. what's the one if you had to pick one you're your brand new customer you're gonna buy one thing what are you buying well i would expect different if i was a brand new customer or not so can i answer kind of two answers Go sure. for it. if you're a brand if i'm a brand new first light customer buy a wick hoodie that's what i would say because that's like that foundation base layer piece you can add on other stuff in future years but like i think that's going to be the piece that you know you really use the most and you notice the benefits of um, if you have a few other first light pieces um, from the whitetail side, buy the source jacket. It's our new uh, like whitetailers puffy jacket, um, and it can work great as your outerwear piece for like early to you know, mid season, and it's the perfect piece to layer over as the season goes on. Perfect, perfect. Um, we didn't have this one in, but I'm gonna add it. Insulated or non-insulated boots? Non-insulated. Non-insulated. Yep. Cool. I, uh, that's a, that's a question I always have too, because we talked about the sweat, you know? Yeah. So and that's my big thing, right? It's like a moisture management thing. Yep. I want to be able to let my feet breathe on the way in and I'll put on different socks, heavier ones, right. Or depending on like, if I'm wearing a liner, then I'll throw on my high lofted wool socks before I climb up. Um, cause man, my feet get, that's, that's the one thing I'm careful of is my feet get cold. Uh, what about what's your favorite thing to do outside of hunting? Ooh, good question. Uh, water skiing. Yeah, oh, yeah I cool. I forgot that you were a water skier. I was gonna. Didn't you run a, like a marathon or something here lately too? Um, like a, or am I thinking I, something not else? Lately. I got a, um, I'm doing a 24 hour trail race two weekends from yeah. now. Okay. So that. Yeah. Did you ever try barefoot skiing? We have a guy that works here that does that. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. The I grew up doing it. My dad and uncle were big into barefooting and falling skiing, so that's kind of. They used to joke, they taught me like the hand signals before I could talk and I was their spotter. So I kind of grew up doing that. And then UW lacrosse, I went to school, they had a water ski team. So I did that all through college as well. That's cool. That's awesome. I heard a horror story one time when a guy was barefoot skiing here locally and got caught by a sunfish that was bathing, sunbathing and ripped his foot open. Oof. That, that, but all right. Lastly, but not least, um, another Wisconsiner favorite adult beverage. Oh gosh. I, I'm a big fan of adult beverages, so it's hard to pick one. <laughs> There's a lot of good uh, ones up there. There is. Okay. Let's go uh, seasonality, right? All right. Here we go. Um, warm months, warm months. I'm going gin and tonic. Um, colder months. I'm going uh, whiskey, old fashioned sour. Oh, he didn't even go beer. I thought he, I mean, that's a land of beer and he didn't even go <laughs> beer. I'm, I'm, I'm a summer shandy guy. I hate to admit it. Oh, there you go. I drink IPAs in the summer and like stouts and porters in the in yeah. the winter. I totally thought you were going to say spotted cow though. I I probably shouldn't say this because I'm get kicked out of Wisconsin. Like <laughs> I have other beers I would prefer to drink than spotted cow. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, that's all we had for you today, man. I knew we were going to have fun. This is great. I know. Again, I say this just on about every podcast, but we, we we try to have guests that we can continue to talk for for hours and hours, and you are definitely no exception, sir. So thank you again for two days out for season. I know you're ready to be in the in a tree. So thanks again for coming on, Greg. We really appreciate it.
Oh, I appreciate you guys having me. And uh, if you ever want to do part two, just let me know. I'm sure there's plenty of other stuff we didn't get to today. So well, happy well, to jump back on. Well, we know in two years we'll need to do it again. So <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, you guys have a good day. All right, everyone, that's all we have for you today. We hope you enjoyed that conversation with Greg. We had a great time talking with him and learning about all the development and testing that goes into creating high-quality whitetail gear. As always, we appreciate you guys listening. Good luck this hunting season, and until next time, enjoy the pursuit.